listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. I um, recently read the book Frankenstein. It's not a joke. I uh, recently read the book Frankenstein. Uh, a, a friend had encouraged me to read it, and, and I was skeptical at first. It's not my genre. Uh, there, there are plenty of other things that I'd rather spend my time reading, but he convinced me that this book, Frankenstein, had spiritual tones to it. Through our conversation, I was like, all right, you, you got me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Frankenstein and, and, and what happens in this story. And I'm not going to feel bad about it. I determined not to feel bad about it because the book is 200 years old. And if, if you need a spoiler alert, this is it. If you've waited 200 years to read this book, but this was the year, and you've missed this book, but this was the year that you were going to read it, and you've missed all the 40 or more stories that hinged on this story of Frankenstein, then you came to the wrong church today. And I'm sorry about that, but I am glad you're here. Frankenstein, not the monster, Dr. Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, uh, who, who gives us the perspective in this story. It tells us very early on uh, that he's got this interest, this insatiable desire. He's interested in life, and he believes that he has the power to create life. And it doesn't take long into the story before this interest becomes an obsession. He is preoccupied with this interest. He even spends all of his time on it, so much so that he's alienated from his family who are several days travel away, and he goes years without seeing them because he wants to bring something to life. He describes himself in this state as restless and frantic for this one pursuit. Throughout those chapters as they build, He's insistent on the fact that his creation is beautiful over and over again. He calls it beautiful until he gets what he wants. And one evening, in some way that it's not very clearly explained, he gives power to this inanimate dead being and it comes to life and immediately the tone shifts. Immediately, he says, he's disgusted with the work of his hands. And for the rest of the story, he calls this thing that he's created and given power to a wretch, a demon, even a monster. Victor Frankenstein had made a lifeless thing into life because he thought that it would bring him joy and happiness. He gave something that that didn't possess power, power, and immediately it began to kill him and everything that belonged to him. Because that is his creator and it wanted a purpose. Because the purpose could never be fulfilled. Frankenstein's monster wanted to torture Victor Frankenstein. The pursuit that he was chasing was a counterfeit. God had given, excuse me, he had given it a power that it wasn't meant to have. And Frankenstein didn't get the payoff that he wanted. It was a counterfeit Counterfeit, by definition, is an imitation of something important with the intention to deceive. A counterfeit is an imitation of something important with the intention to deceive. And while Frankenstein seems like an extreme story that that maybe we can't relate to, 
we all turn things into ultimate things to try to bring us peace and pleasure that can't really satisfy us. Every human being is born with a desire to experience joy and fulfillment, happiness and satisfaction, purpose and pleasure. And since we're not completely self-sufficient, we can't find answers within. We can't find answers for our cravings for pleasure in isolation. So we run to people and things to try to give us a sense of identity and purpose, to try to help us find joy. And we give away a power that's wielded over us. Each and every human being does that in our pursuits. We tell ourselves, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure. What is that for you that possesses you? Is it a title? Some of us go through life longing to hold a title. Maybe that title is boss. Maybe that title is spouse. Maybe some of you think if I become the spouse, I'll become the boss. Didn't work out in my marriage. (laughs) Some of us pursue a salary to satisfy us. Some of us pursue the perfect house. Many of us pursue a person's love. You know how many men I meet that go throughout life longing to hear good job from their dad? And every achievement they go after is just a shadow of of that news that they wanted to hear from their own father. Well done, son. We chase people's love. We chase things to try to bring us joy and purpose and satisfaction. But no person, no thing can give our soul all it needs. And like Frankenstein, our interests become obsessions. And eventually they become monsters that try to kill us and they destroy our relationships, and they destroy our lives. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the common counterfeits. Safety, sex, money, feelings, all good things that make terrible gods. But today, today we're going to learn the foundation of fighting temptation to trust counterfeits by looking at the life of Jesus who shows us the only way to find true joy and satisfaction is by finding our identity in God. What we're going to look at today is the life of Jesus and how he demonstrates for us that the only way we can experience true joy and satisfaction is by finding our identity in God. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to turn to to Luke chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, let's change that today. Just come talk to me after the service, and and I want to get a Bible into your hands so you can have that. Uh, The Bible is what we cling to. It's what we learn from. It's how we're transformed. Uh, But we're going to read today from Luke chapter 3 and learn what God has to say to us. The first thing I want you to see when we turn to Luke chapter three, is that your identity isn't about who you are. It's about whose you are. Identity is not about who you are. It's about whose you are. We look at who Jesus is in Luke three, beginning in verse 21, where it says, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. First we see your identity isn't about who you are, it's about whose you are. Identity can't be up to you because you are constantly looking for something to inform your identity. We are constantly looking to people and things to tell us who we are. If I ask you to tell me about yourself, 
none of you, maybe few of you, will, will just give me the answer, I am. Because we're not self-sufficient beings. That's not where we find all of our presence and purpose and joy. We look to other things to bring that to us. If I ask you to tell me about yourself, you're going to answer with what you do, what you have. Maybe some people will, will tell me what's been done to you. You'll talk to me about your relationships or your circumstances in life. Jesus' identity is shown to us at his baptism, and it's not what he's done. It's whose he is. That's what identifies Jesus. We don't know a lot about Jesus up to this point in Luke chapter 3. We haven't been given a lot of details of his life, but what we do know just through those first few chapters of Luke is that Jesus was born of a virgin. And I, I want you to understand that, that 2,000 years ago, that sounded as weird as it sounds now. Jesus was born of a virgin. They weren't foolish back then. They knew where babies came from 2,000 years ago. But in Jesus' story, he's born of a virgin. Well, that meant a couple of things. That meant that, that most people probably looked at him and his family with a couple of stigmas. One, that they're liars because people aren't born of virgins. Everyone knew that. So he wore that shame as people looked on his family. Secondly, he was born out of wedlock. He was born before his parents were married. And because of that, that was a, a carnal crime. So they looked on the family as sinners and liars. So Jesus was born with a stigma attached to him. We also know through the first few chapters of Luke that Jesus was a child refugee. There was a local leader who was in authority that had found out that someone was claiming that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was born. And that local leader named Herod didn't want that because that means he was going to be robbed of authority and power. So he said, find this person so that he can kill him. When he couldn't find him, he, he, he put out pretty much a, a, a case to kill all the, ch the male children in the area, one of whom was Jesus. And when that word got out, Jesus' family fled from their home of Israel and, and went to Egypt to be raised for a little while for the sake of safety. So we understand Jesus was a refugee as a child. He was powerless to some degree. We also know from the first few chapters of Luke, we find Jesus in this one unique story uh, of when he was a child in the temple and he was interacting with the religious leaders. And we found that this young child named Jesus, born of a virgin, born in a carpenter's family, was filled with some unique sense of wisdom but we don't know a lot of the other details about Jesus' early life. So when we get to this point in his baptism, we find that Jesus' identity isn't what he's done because we don't know much of what he's done. His identity is rooted in whose he is. Jesus is God's beloved son with whom God is well pleased. What a beautiful statement that's made. How many of us long to hear from our parents that, that we are a beloved child with whom our parents is well pleased, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are. That's what God the Father says to Jesus. Culturally, a son was supposed to be the perfect representation of the father. So when we hear that Jesus is described as the son of God the Father, 
we understand that Jesus is himself God because a father and a son have equal status in this society. Jesus is God's son, and therefore, the Bible is telling us that Jesus is, in every way, God. Why, then, is Jesus getting baptized? Isn't baptism a symbol of of our sins being washed away? If Jesus is the righteous son of God, with whom God is well pleased, and he's sinless, he's not done anything to rebel against his heavenly father, why on earth would he do this thing that's a symbol for being saved from sin? Well, I think it's a unique circumstance for Jesus. We see these crowds of people coming to John the Baptist, who is actually Jesus's cousin, to be baptized because John came telling people the good news that the Savior was there and urging people to turn away from their own way of living and towards God's way of living. And when they did that, when they made that profession, they were baptized in the water. But now Jesus, the Messiah, comes forward. I think something's different about his baptism. One thing that I think is different points backwards, another points forwards. When we look at Jesus' baptism, I think we need to look back into the Old Testament, into the story of Exodus, where one of these key figures in all of the Old Testament named Moses is present. Moses was a leader that came to power, was called to power by God in the midst of Israel, God's chosen people, being captives in 400 years of slavery. In the midst of that, Moses rises up, and in a miraculous way, God's people escape from the throes of the Egyptians. And then they get all the way to this body of water called the Red Sea. The Egyptians are behind them, chasing them. And through a miraculous way, God uses Moses to part the waters, and Moses leads God's people through the waters to get out of slavery. He brings salvation. And then as they get through, the Egyptians follow them and the waves crash down on the Egyptians and there's devastation. Jesus goes into the waters and comes out as a commencement to his ministry. He's about to begin his ministry and he's going to be a better Moses. He's not just going to lead people out of slavery from a country. He's going to lead people out of slavery from sin and death. So he comes through the waters and comes out of the waters to bring people salvation through him. But it's pointing back to Moses to show us that. He's going to be a better Moses. And then we look forward to something that baptism points to. When we celebrate baptisms here as a church, we talk about them symbolizing both a cleaning and a burial Because baptism reminds us of the removal of sins in a washing in the water, but it also reminds us how we were washed by sin through the righteous son of God who would have to live righteously, die unjustly, be buried, and because the power of God was in him, he would resurrect from the grave. So I believe Jesus' baptism points backwards to Moses. He's going to be the better Moses that people need, but it also points forward to what he's coming to do as a minister, to bring life, to bring power over death. After Jesus is baptized, look what Luke does next. In verse 23, it says, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be, and then it goes into this long genealogy. Uh, I'm going to put a pin in that genealogy. I'm not going to read through all the names today, 
Uh, but in a few weeks, when we prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ, I am actually going to preach through an entire genealogy and talk through how this isn't just a random list of names that come from Jesus' family's background. This is an intentional list of people throughout the Old Testament. The Jewish people in the first century AD would have read this genealogy and they would have got to certain names in that list and they would have been stunned. They would have been shocked because those names were the people that God said were going to be in the family line of the Messiah. That's the line of Jesus. It goes back, I count 76 generations are represented in this list of names that the gospel writer Luke gives us. And the very end of that list tracks all the way back, son of Adam, son of God. Jesus's family story begins at the beginning of creation. That's the story in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, when we meet God's first created human being, Adam. The Bible makes it unmistakably clear that Jesus' identity is God. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the savior that God promised to send the savior from sin and death. Jesus is not just a nice guy. He's not just a buddy that's good to have in certain situations. He's not just the guy that turns water into wine. It's celebrations. Jesus doesn't just make us kind people through his teachings. Jesus is God and Jesus is the savior of the world. The Bible is clear on the identity of Jesus. But now the question comes to us, who do you say Jesus is? When pressed, How do you describe who Jesus is in your own words? Who do you believe Jesus is as you go about day-to-day life? If someone is to ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? What would your starting point be? Last week, uh, I read an article in Christianity Today. It's got a really awkward title, but it's a brilliant article. It's called Missionary Insights into the Mind of the Unchurched in the Heartland. Frankenstein and stuff like this is what I read throughout the week, okay? Guilty. Listen to that. Missionary insights into the mind of the unchurched in the heartland. This article in in this news journal, Christianity Today, was shining a spotlight on a, a former foreign missionary who had done a lot of work in other countries, had come back to the United States, and he was fascinated by what what Christian culture was creating as far as what people thought about God and Jesus and who they are. Uh, So in this article, they're, they're looking specifically in Oklahoma. I know a lot of you are immediately going to write off the article because you don't like Oklahoma. He's looking specifically at Oklahoma in a place very similar to our culture and in, in what seems like the Bible belt that we talk about and studying how do people make up their minds about who God is. Listen to what's said. Many unchurched, dechurched, and lightly churched people are winging it religiously. Today, a person's ideas about faith might be more likely to come from a Harry Potter movie or a video game than a sermon or the Bible. People are creating their own belief systems as they go along. So I ask you, who or what, who or what informs your ideas of who God is? Who or what helps you decide who Jesus is? Is it the media? Is it your favorite TV shows? Is it public figures like celebrities or politicians? Is it your feelings that cause you to believe God is who he is and God works the way he works? For some people, it's their politics that cause them to believe how God must work. Or is your version of Jesus just an idealized version of you? 
a good way to test that is if God never disagrees with you, you don't actually worship God. You worship an idealized version of yourself. So think about that. In your everyday life, does God disagree with you? Because if God never disagrees with you, you don't actually worship God. You just worship an idealized version of yourself and you believe the world should operate around your interests and likes and wants and desires. When you say, I think God is this, or I think Jesus is that, what is your source? And are you qualified to make that assertion on your own? For Christians, we go to to this book, this reference, this resource that we use called the Bible to help inform us about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what he's done. Are you qualified to make the assertions that you're making about who God is? What are you going to as your source for who Jesus is and what he's done? Next, we see that Jesus' actions support his identity as the son of God. And listen to what happens at the beginning of chapter four. I want to point out there's a chapter break here. We move from chapter three to chapter four, but the same story is continuing on. We see that when it says, then Jesus left the Jordan. The Jordan is the Jordan River. This is where he's been baptized. Chapter four starts immediately after Jesus's baptism. Jesus left the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. Just talking about food in a church service, some of you realize that you can't go 40 minutes through a church gathering without your stomach growling. And Jesus has gone 40 days in the wilderness fasting from food. And the Bible tells us he's hungry. Of course he's hungry. Any of us would be hungry. We see in this passage that behavior is evidence of your identity. Our identity isn't who we are, it's whose we are. Behavior is evidence of your identity. Jesus is the son of God. So he's going to act like he's the son of God. He's always going to follow the spirit of God. So why on earth would the spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Well, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to face isolation, hunger, and temptation so that he could lead us out of isolation, hunger, and temptation. You can't lead people out of a wilderness you've never been through. You can't give away what you don't have. Jesus has to face the enemy if he's going to beat the enemy. Jesus has to save people from sin, so he's going to have to confront sin. So that's exactly what he does. We should find comfort in God's willingness and Jesus's willingness to be led into temptation because he can't lead us away from it if he doesn't go through it himself. Do you listen to how intimate the God that we worship is? He's not making decisions about our salvation from, from a distant heaven based on our works in this life. Rather, he sees we're not able to honor him in this life. We're not able to please him in the way that we act. So he sends his son to take on flesh in order that he can become like us in every way and accomplish what we could never do on our own. Jesus is identifying with us by being led by the spirit into the wilderness. It's important for us to note that being pleasing to God doesn't remove you from the devil's sights. It makes you a target. Do you hear that? Being pleasing to God doesn't remove you from the devil's sights. It actually makes you a target. 
I think my wife and I have experienced this in our home lately. That's not why she's not here. She's actually, she left this morning because she's on a trip to, to be equipped as a minister for her new job. Uh, she works in our church's denominations district here in Texas and Oklahoma uh, to help bring pastor's wives together so that they can grow in the gospel in a unique community. Now, the last few months from July to the present, uh, she's been doing a lot of the behind the scenes work to get ready for that ministry to begin. But, but last week and this week are really the two weeks where some of this is launching and it's moving from ideas to situations where life transformation can happen. And simultaneously in the last two weeks, there's been so much constant tension and headbutting in our household ways that we don't typically operate, arguing, infighting, disagreeing. It's been like we forgot that we're allies working together in this life rather than fighting against each other. And it's caused conflict, even to the extent that our, our kids have noticed, which is incredibly humbling. When this occurred to us, and we came together and talked about it. We prayed about it. We, we, we navigated, why is this happening and at a certain point, we, we came to the understanding, the belief that, of course, tensions like this would happen now because she's beginning to step out in ministry in a new way and bring life transformation and renewal into places where there is darkness. She's bringing light. So we're tempted to, to fight, to have conflict, to believe lies. Being involved in ministry, being a follower of Christ doesn't mean you're out of the sights of evil. It means you're a target because God has an enemy, the enemy that's talked about here, this one called the devil. In the next few verses, we see the devil tries to tempt Jesus at least three ways in, in, in these passages. And before we do that, I think we should ask, who is the devil? In the story of the Bible, the devil is a fallen angel. It's a created being that wanted equality with God, but because that was not right, was thrown out of the presence of God. So, so the devil's considered a fallen angel, a divine being that is estranged from God and has become an enemy of God. So the devil is not an equal opposite counterpart to God. It's a lesser being than God. The devil throughout the Bible is referred to as the deceiver. That's another name that he's given, a deceiver. He's called the father of lies. And the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness in isolation. And the deceiver is there because of course he is. The first temptation begins in verse three. The devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. The first temptation looks like a temptation for, for hunger to be able to meet felt needs. Of course, Jesus is hungry after 40 days, but that's not what the core of the temptation is. I believe the core of this temptation is Jesus' identity because what does he say? If you are the son of God, do this. But what did, just, what did God the father just tell Jesus he is? The son with whom he is well pleased. This is an attack on Jesus' identity. The devil will use your perceived weaknesses, your felt needs, and your desires to try to change your allegiance to something other than God. Why would this be the first temptation that the devil would use to try to trap Jesus? Well, think back to the beginning of humanity in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. We've already talked about Adam. What did Adam do when he was in the wilderness, isolated? 
he was tempted by food to stop trusting God and obeying God. I imagine the devil's thinking, if it worked once, maybe let's try it again. So he tempts Jesus with food while he's isolated and hungry in the wilderness. But unlike Adam, Jesus responds with trust and obedience because whose is Jesus? He's God the Father's. And how does he convey that? He quotes his father. He quotes a passage in Deuteronomy, a book early in the Bible that's called the second giving of the law. He knows what his father says about truth. So Jesus quotes that. What Adam should have done, speak truth to the father of lies, Jesus does the right way because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Adam. Second temptation, beginning in verse 5. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The second temptation looks like one for worldly wealth and material possessions, but it's not. It's another temptation about identity. The devil is the deceiver. Who does the world belong to? The world belongs to God. The world belongs to God the Father, and the devil is saying, this is mine, and I'll give it over to you if you'll just worship me. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. In this culture, the Son is the inheritor of everything that's the Father's. So the devil is trying to tempt Jesus to believe that that God isn't who he says he is, and he's not going to do what he promises. Jesus doesn't take the bait because whose is Jesus? He's the Son of God, and he acts that way. The devil tries to get Jesus to switch his allegiance. He says, worship me, but Jesus knows better. The third temptation in verse 9, so the devil took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. The third temptation looks like one for power and control, a power to use selfishly, but that's not really what it's about. It's about identity because again, we see the devil saying, if you are the son of God, do you realize that we get tempted in the same way? We get tempted by our felt needs. We get tempted by our desires for things. We get tempted for power and control to wield it selfishly. But all those temptations aren't just for things. They aren't just for status. They're temptations to change our allegiance from God to anything else. The devil, the deceiver, doesn't just try to get you to do bad things. He tries to get you to change your allegiance. Sin is what separates us from God. It isn't just what we do. It's whose we are. Do you hear that? Sin isn't just what we do. It's whose we are. Whose are you? Every time we give our allegiance to something or someone other than God, we're creating counterfeit gods that don't have the power to bring us joy and satisfaction in what the Bible calls true life. Every time we don't 
say that we are one of God's and, and we allow ourselves to be something or someone else's. We're giving away this power that other people and other things don't belong having and they wield it over us. And some of those things we give power to turn into monsters that kill us quickly, like unhealthy coping mechanisms uh, such as substance abuse or suicide. Others are a slow burn that distract us from living fruitful lives for the glory of God and the good of others. What is your identity wrapped up in? Who is your identity wrapped up in? You will behave accordingly. That's what the Bible's telling us. Jesus is the son of God and he pleases God by doing what we could never do. He confronts the devil. He resists temptation by trusting and obeying God perfectly. And this is the response. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from Jesus for a time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. News of a savior who was stronger than sin. Jesus confronts the devil. He resists temptation and obeys God. Jesus' victory over temptation proves that he's the only one who can conquer sin because he doesn't succumb to it. This was Jesus' first victory over the devil, but another one was coming. Jesus' formal ministry began with a baptism and culminated with a cross. Every step of the way was marked with joyful trust and obedience. Jesus' greatest pleasure came from his identity as a beloved son. How do we know that? Because he acted like a beloved son. Identity isn't who you are. It is whose you are. Your behavior gives evidence to your identity. So the two most pressing questions this Bible passage begs us to answer are first, who do you believe Jesus is? That's a question that we should never tire of asking ourselves because we're tempted to believe the wrong things every day in our lives. Who do you believe Jesus is? If you believe he's the son of God, what does that mean for you? I think it means a lot. But I think that's something we all need to wrestle with regardless of what you came in here today believing. Who do you believe Jesus is? If you believe he's the son of God, what does that mean for you? If you don't believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, where do you come up with your ideas about who Jesus is? That's an important question. Do your ideas about who God is, who Jesus is, come from you, or do they come from other sources? What are those sources? As Christians, as Christ followers, we go to the Bible as our source. I hope you wrestle with who Jesus is because all of life, and I believe even eternal life, hinges on who you say Jesus is. The second question that I think we need to face today is, whose do you believe you are? You can't be self-sufficient. You chase other things in life. You chase people, experiences, things to inform your identity. Whose do you believe you are? If you believe Jesus accomplished what you couldn't through resisting temptation to sin and even dying unrightfully for the sins of the world on a cross, then the Bible says you are his. If you have faith in Jesus' righteous life, in his unjust death, in his glorious resurrection, you have a new identity. You are one of his. 
the Bible tells us many things about our new identity in Jesus. It says you're freed from the power of sin and death. It says you're adopted by God. It says you've become a child of God. You've been accepted by God. The Bible tells us if we are one of Jesus's, we are also a citizen of heaven. We are members of the family of God. And the Bible also tells us that the spirit is leading you throughout life. The same spirit that led Jesus to resist temptation, the same spirit that led Jesus to resurrect from the grave is present in your life. Is it leading you to act differently as a follower of Christ? Following Jesus means you have a new identity. Following Jesus also means you have the power to spot counterfeit gods that will never bring you true life. This is a power that we don't wield really strongly in our society. The power to identify counterfeit gods and resist them. Counterfeit currency experts, people that that look at checks and, and, and dollar bills, Counterfeit currency experts say that to spot a counterfeit, you don't study counterfeits, you look at the real thing. And they have four rules if you want to study counterfeits. Touch, tilt, look through, and look at. They say touch, tilt, look through, and look at. When you have bills, especially larger bills with a lot of value, they say learn what it feels like. Most currency is made with with a cotton-based paper, so it feels drastically different than other forms of paper. Learn what that currency feels like by touching it. They say tilt it. Look at it from different angles. See what details show up that you didn't see before. The differences in colors, maybe a holographic stripe. Touch, tilt, look through, hold it up into the light and see the watermarks that are on the bill. Those are really difficult to create counterfeits of, accurately at least. Touch, tilt, look through, and look at. Make close observations. Learn what the details look like. That's how you spot counterfeits. And the experts say for someone who has looked closely at the real thing, identifying counterfeit currency is not terribly difficult. That sounds like a fun skill set to have. (laughs) Similarly, the Bible gives us tests that we can use to discern truth from error counterfeits from the real thing. So we should go to, to, to life with the same approach when we're looking for counterfeits. We don't just try to identify what counterfeits are. We should be so familiar with the real thing that we can spot a counterfeit easily when we see it. How do we learn to do that? The first way that I would encourage you to be able to spot counterfeits is to go through life asking, is what I'm seeing, is what I'm experiencing, is what I'm feeling consistent with the Bible? God has given us a source of truth in his word. It's through examining his word that when we interact with things that are counter to his word in our everyday lives, we will be able to spot counterfeits more clearly. But that only happens through time spent understanding what God's word says. God's word will always point us to who God is, what God does, and what that means for us. Secondly, we should learn to go to wise counsel. We should have godly men and women in our lives who help us discern truth compared to lies. That's part of the reason God has blessed us with the gift of a church. There are men and women in this room who you should go to, who I do go to, to help me discern truth from lies in everyday life. You should have people in your life that know God's word better than you, 
that can help give you wise counsel when you approach different decisions in life to make sure you're not pursuing counterfeit gods, monsters that you can give power to that will end up destroying you. We ask ourselves, is it consistent with the Bible? We ask for wise counsel, having godly men and women in our lives. And thirdly, when we approach different things in life that cause us to question things, we should go back and say, how has the church handled this throughout history? That's the order that we should help discern truth from lies in. What does the Bible say about this? What does godly counsel say about this? How has the church handled this this issue throughout history? And we should behave accordingly because our behavior gives evidence of our identity. And if we are gods, it means we should follow Christ. We can't do this perfectly. We can't do this perfectly. Jesus did this perfectly. So for us, when we realize we've been chasing counterfeit gods to give us some sense of joy and satisfaction in life, we have the practice of turning away from the counterfeits and turning back to God. The, the, the spiritual word that's used for this in the Bible is repentance. It just means to turn away from something. But when you're turning away from something, you're turning towards something. I encourage you today, if you recognize that you have chased things and given them a power to try to bring you joy and satisfaction, that you would pause today and turn away from those things and admit that that God was right, that you were in need of salvation and, and believe that Jesus promised to give you everything you need that you could never do on your own and trust him. What are the counterfeit gods you're chasing? Whose are they telling you you are? Repent from those things and turn to God. In these next weeks, we're going to take a look at at counterfeit joy that we chase in safety, in sex, in money, in feelings. Like I said before, all good things that make terrible gods when we elevate them into ultimate things. But today, in each week, we're going to lean back on the fact that everything we talk about hinges on finding our identity in God's Son, Jesus Christ, with whom he is well pleased. We have access to that, to begin finding joy in life by pursuing the author of life and recognizing that we are his. Let's pray toward that end. Almighty God, when we, when we look at your Bible, I pray that, that we would feel conviction that we're looking at truth Father, I I pray that that we would have assurance that as we read these words and see the beauty of your son, that we would want him more than we want other things in this life. God, I I pray that, that as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, whom you look at as a beloved son with whom you are well pleased, that we would trust him and believe that you have given us the same words for our own lives, that we are your adopted children, citizens of heaven, that you've brought into your family, that you've given power to overcome temptation and sin and even death. And Lord, I pray that as we find our new identity in whose we are, that we would behave accordingly and that the strongholds of counterfeit gods would would have a loosened grip on us and that we could walk freely following your son, Jesus Christ, who followed you with joy even to the cross in order to bring estranged, 
orphans, sons and daughters back into your family. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for telling us whose we are. We pray for faith. We pray that we would exchange counterfeit gods for truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.